So this morning, we're coming back to the book of Revelation after several weeks of break from it. Uh, we're probably going to be taking a bit of a slower and gentler pace over the next few weeks because we've got a break for Easter, and then we have a couple of uh, visiting missionary speakers after that. But over the next few weeks and months, I'm hoping to complete our look at this remarkable book. We come today to Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to those chapters. Just to give you a little bit of background, and obviously we can't go back all over the nine chapters that we've looked at. If, like me, you can't remember everything that we've already looked at, the sermons are on the church website, and you can catch up on some of them there. But you may remember that we're in the middle of a section that begins in chapter 8, continuing into chapter 9, that describes the sounding of seven trumpets. And in these trumpets, John is giving an overview of the entire period between Jesus' first coming to earth and his final second coming on the Day of Judgment. John, in fact, has already given us one overview of this period in chapter 6 with his description of the opening of the seven seals. That was a description from the perspective of the suffering church and focused on the persecution the church will endure. Now in chapters 8 and 9, John describes that same period, but he does so from the perspective of the world. He sees the calamities that come upon our world in terms of seven trumpets that sound as warning calls to the world to repent and return to God. Later on in chapter 16, John will describe this entire period a third time, this time from the perspective of the temple, the throne of God, in terms of seven bowls that are poured out on the earth. It's these same events that are described in three different ways and from three different angles. It's a little bit like watching a rugby match on television and a try is scored and the cameras go back and they show the try from various different angles. You may also recall that when it came to the opening of the seven seals, there was a dramatic pause in chapter 7, between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. That chapter asked the question, who can stand on the great day of God's wrath? And the answer was, all of those who have already been sealed by the Lamb, who have his mark of ownership on their foreheads. And now in the same way, in chapters 10 and 11, we have another dramatic pause between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And the question in these chapters is this, what are God's people to do during this time of God's judgment on the earth and the persecution of his people? What are we to do? And the answer is one word, witness. God's people are called to witness. That's what chapters 10 and 11 are all about, God's witnessing people. Now, I was planning on preaching on both of these chapters this morning, but around 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, while I was desperately trying to reduce 32 pages down to 17 pages, I realized that there's just too much to pack into one sermon. 
It's a great pity because you really need to keep these chapters together because they have the same message. So I'll do you a deal. I promise to preach a shorter sermon this morning if you promise to come back for part two next week. Deal? Deal. (laughs) Chapters 10 and 11 include four distinct visions, and so we'll look at the first two this week and then the second two next week, uh, which means that our reading today is from Revelation chapter 10, from verse 1, and then to chapter 11, verse 2. John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for two months. This is God's word. How many of you have ever played the game 30 seconds uh, with your family, maybe your children or your grandchildren? For those of you who aren't familiar with the game, it's a little bit like charades, except that you verbally describe words to your team members without using the word itself. So, for example, you might get the word sky on your card, and you would say something like the big blue thing above us. You play in two teams, and and it's a lot of fun. Something very interesting and slightly annoying happens when you have members of the same family on one team. So perhaps there's a husband and wife on the team, and they start to use some fairly personal clues that the other team members don't have access to. So the husband might say, that place we went on holiday last year. 
or the thing I got you for your birthday, or the object that sits on our dining room table. The other members of the family are able to decode the clue, but it's not much fun for the rest of the team. Well, something very similar to that is taking place in the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus gives his church, through the Apostle John, a revelation, an unveiling, a disclosure of the unseen realities of the future, yes, but more importantly, of the unseen realities of the present, of what things are really like behind the curtain, behind the things that are taking place in our world, and that have in fact always taken place in our world. But John does this by using symbols, symbols that are familiar to the members of his family, but not so familiar to those who are outside of the family. And the symbols come from the family's history, from the Old Testament scriptures. Chapters 10 and 11 are shot through with a variety of different images and terms, all coming from the Hebrew scriptures. And John presumes that his readers will be familiar with these because they've studied the scriptures. He expects us all to have a working knowledge of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, for starters. As Eugene Peterson points out in his little book on Revelation, no one has any business reading the last book of the Bible who has not read the previous 65. It would be like reading the final chapter of a novel without reading the rest of the book. The images and the pictures and the symbols and the numbers of the final book of the Bible come to us from the previous 65 books. So what I want to do this morning and next week is simply go through these verses again and looking at these various symbols and what they mean, yes, but more importantly, looking at their application to our own hearts and lives today. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at everything, but I think we'll cover enough. We begin then with the first vision of the mighty angel and the scroll. The first thing that John sees is an angel. Now, forget the pictures you may have of angels from Christmas cards or paintings. Banish forever those cute little baby cherubs with wings that you see on postcards and greeting cards. This angel is immense. Imagine standing at Sea Point Promenade and seeing a massive being who plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on top of Table Mountain. This is a being of cosmic proportions. His legs are like fiery pillars and his face is like the sun. He is clothed with a cloud and above his head is a rainbow. The symbol of the rainbow comes to us from the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Chapter 9 and the story of Noah. God places the rainbow in the sky to remind himself that never again will he bring total destruction on the earth. It's a divine post-it note. God's gospel promise will never be broken. His plan of redemption will never be overturned by human sin. We saw this rainbow right at the very beginning in chapter 4 in John's opening vision of God on his throne. A rainbow like an emerald shone around the throne. 
And it's so significant that this rainbow now appears again in the middle of the seven trumpets of judgment. The picture is that God, in his wrath, in his judgment, remembers mercy. God's final word is not judgment, but redemption. The rainbow reminds God's people that even though God's judgment comes upon the earth, he is faithful to his people and will protect them and preserve them. In verse 3, we read how this mighty angel gives a shout like the roaring of a lion. And when he shouts, he's answered by seven thunders. This isn't simply a noise. These seven thunders speak an intelligible message because John is about to write down what the thunders say. But a voice from heaven prevents him from doing so. The voice says, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. We have no idea what the seven thunders said, although that has not prevented many Bible commentators wasting several pages of their commentaries trying to guess what the seven thunders said. The message is clear. There are mysteries that are not revealed to human beings and that cannot be figured out by human intelligence or ingenuity. One thinks of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is in fact probably speaking about himself in that chapter, and he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. That's quite a contrast to some Christian leaders and preachers today who have no problem telling you word for word everything that God said to them over their bowl of cornflakes this morning, and who go into great detail about all sorts of visions and experiences, and then who sometimes inexplicably get it wrong. God says that coronavirus will last two months. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to us. I'm simply suggesting that claiming to know the mind of God on everything doesn't make God bigger. It reduces God to someone whom we can predict and even manipulate. God is a lot bigger than we think. And I think that those who clearly speak for God have a humility about them, sometimes even a hiddenness, not even Paul said everything that God had revealed to him. But this has implications for interpreting the book of Revelation itself. Revelation gives us the main storyline of God's working in human history. The world will continue to experience the effects of human sin and wickedness in wars, famines, pestilences, upheavals in the natural world, and the church will be persecuted. Jesus already told us that in Mark chapter 8. However, God's people will ultimately be safe and secure until the day when Christ returns and they will be with him in glory forever. That's the main theme. That's what we need to know. But there are parts of God's plan that are totally unknown to us. There are subplots whose details we don't have. And those who spend copious amounts of time and energy trying to read the newspaper into the book of Revelation or who try to interpret every symbol literally 
show that they've lost the plot and they end up missing the great message of the book of Revelation. Well, after shouting to the seven thunders, we read in verses 5 to 7 that the mighty angel raises his right hand to heaven and swears by him who lives forever and ever that there will be no more delay. Verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. What is this mystery of God that will be finally accomplished? In the New Testament, the word mystery doesn't refer to something that is secret and needs to be figured out. A little bit like those Agatha Christie mysteries that I enjoy watching. I mean, it's very obvious, you know, somebody gets murdered and there's a creep and it's obviously the creep who's done this. And then the creep gets murdered and then you no longer know what's going on until Agatha Christie has sort of killed off everyone else and there's only one person left anyway. That's not what mystery means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word mystery refers to a truth that God alone reveals. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And then he defines the mystery like this, Ephesians 3 verse 6, this mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery, that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to bring to himself a brand new people. As we read this morning, Around the throne there will be this vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But we need to ask the question, how is this mystery accomplished? And the next part of the vision answers the question. John hears a voice from heaven telling him to take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the mighty angel. This angel is so immense that, understandably, John doesn't simply take the scroll, but rather goes up to the angel and asks if he can take the scroll. And the angel says to him, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Which is exactly what happens. And then the angel says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You may remember that the prophet Ezekiel had a very similar experience in Ezekiel chapter 3. When Ezekiel is commissioned by God to be his prophet to the people of Israel, Ezekiel is given a scroll to eat which tastes as sweet as honey in his mouth. He's then told to go and speak God's word to the people of Israel, but he's also told that God's people will refuse to listen to him. And so Ezekiel says that he then went out in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. Ezekiel faced a lifetime of opposition to God's sweet words. 
And so, in fact, both Ezekiel in the Old Testament and now John in the New Testament describe the glorious joy and hardship of sharing God's word. The little scroll is the gospel message, God's word. Every Christian must take and eat God's word. We take God's word into ourselves. We digest it. It becomes part of us. And then we are commissioned to go and share that message. You must prophesy. We accomplish the mystery of Christ's plan to bring one multiracial, multi-ethnic group to himself through witnessing. And here is described for us the dual nature of witnessing. Because on the one hand, God's word really is sweet and precious to us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 19, the decrees of the Lord are more precious than gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. But on the other hand, God's word can also turn our stomach sour. Sometimes the things that we read in God's word, or hear from God's word, or preach or teach from God's word, are difficult for ourselves to swallow. God's commands sometimes hurt us and cut us and dig deep within us. But more particularly, God's word becomes bitter to us when people refuse to accept his word, when people reject God's word, and when we are mocked and sidelined and persecuted and belittled for proclaiming God's word. Paul uses a slightly different metaphor, uh, this time not using the sense of taste, but rather the sense of smell. He writes, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life, and who is equal to such a task. As one writer puts it, we all have the personal task of being faithful to the sweet gospel message in spite of the sour opposition and persecution it will bring. And the sourness of rejection and persecution is further elaborated in the next two visions, the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses. We'll just look at the first one today. But at the beginning of chapter 11, the scene changes. John is given a measuring rod and told to go and measure the temple in Jerusalem. Again, this vision is not unique. It's similar to one that Zechariah has. In Zechariah chapter 2, Zechariah sees a young man with a measuring line in his hand. Zechariah asks him where he's off to. And the young man replies, I'm off to go and measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And then an angel says, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. This vision that Zechariah has of the man with the measuring line speaks about God's protection over the city. God will protect his people. And the message seems to be similar here in Revelation chapter 11, except it's no longer a city 
or even a physical temple that is in view here. Remember that John is writing these words in 96 AD. And at that time, the temple in Jerusalem no longer existed. It had been destroyed by the Romans in around AD 70. What then is this temple that John is told to measure and that God promises to protect? Well, Paul writes to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, and he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? John is told to go and measure the people of God. And like the vision in the book of Zechariah, the vision has to do with God's protection of his people. We're told that the outer court of the temple is going to be trampled by the Gentiles. Uh, the city will be trampled by the Gentiles. But the temple itself, the inner sanctuary, will be safe. Just, just to say that this trampling of the outer court, this persecution of God's people, the opposition we experience in evangelism is so important to bear in mind. To quote Eugene Peterson again, it's irresponsible to describe the work of witness as all sweetness. There are some who persist in doing just that, who tell us that if we're bold to speak the word of truth skillfully and sincerely, we will invariably meet with success. There's no biblical warrant for that. Quite the opposite, in fact. To quote the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. When we step out in witness boldly, we sometimes find that we are persecuted. But despite the opposition, the persecution, the belittlement, the ridicule, the vision speaks about the ultimate safety of God's people. Although they're battered around the edges on the outside, yet inwardly in the inner sanctuary, God's people are ultimately and eternally safe. As Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. This picture of God's protection of his witnessing people is something that we'll see more fully next week. But if we were just to put these first two visions together for a moment, we can say this. In the vision of the little scroll, uh, John and his readers, that's you and me, are commissioned by God to proclaim God's word, even in the face of painful opposition. And now, in the second vision, God comes and assures us and comforts us that he will protect us. While we may face persecution, even death, for proclaiming God's word, we are ultimately and eternally secure. And so the question comes to us today, with whom am I sharing God's precious gospel message? Who am I praying for? What family members or friends or colleagues am I faithfully praying for regularly? What opportunities am I taking to share God's precious word with people who are yet to know him? It's not always easy especially in dark times like an international pandemic 
and the threat of another world war. But actually, it's precisely in the middle of the sounding of God's trumpets of warning that we are called on to speak. Our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine are doing this right now as churches open their doors to refugees, use their basements as bomb shelters, feed and clothe the population, all the while proclaiming the good news that Jesus is King. And yes, there are these present sufferings, but they are as nothing in comparison to God's final and eternal wrath on the Day of Judgment. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Pastor Daryl Johnson points out that in chapters 8 to 11, it's not actually the trumpet blast themselves that bring people to repentance. Remember we saw, as we studied those chapters, that the trumpets, uh, things like wars and rumors of wars and famine and disease, act as warning lights, uh, warning trumpets, warning sirens, uh, to bring people to repentance. But the trumpets alone don't do that. It's the faithful proclamation of God's word during the sounding of the seven trumpets that brings men and women and young people to repentance and a turning to God. So who am I witnessing to? When was the last time I shared the gospel with someone? I told you a few weeks ago that uh, I've started speaking to telemarketers, people who phone me up during the week, um, and I noticed that this past week I had one telemarketer who phoned me and I was in a hurry and so I just kind of got rid of them as, as quickly as possible. And in fact I was quite curt and upset. How, why do you have my number? I didn't take, take the time. And then a little later on uh, in the week uh, somebody phoned me up and said, you know, can I have a few minutes? I said, well, if I can have a few minutes of your time at the end, yes. And at the end I simply said, you know, June, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he loved you enough to send his son Jesus in the world to die for your sin? Is he the most important person in your life? She said he was, uh, but afterwards she still wanted my banking details, which made me a little bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> what, what opportunities are we taking just to share a little bit of this message that is so precious and sweet to us? I just happened to be reading a section of one of John Stott's books yesterday on the topic of mission. And he said this, Mission cannot be regarded as the hobby of a few eccentric enthusiasts. On the contrary, it arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global God. If then we've resisted the missionary dimension of the church's life, or dismissed it as if it were dispensable, or patronized it reluctantly with a few perfunctory prayers and grudging coins, or become preoccupied with our own narrow-minded parochial concerns, we need to repent, that is, change our mind and attitude. Do we profess to believe in God, He's a missionary God. Do we say we are committed to Christ? He's a missionary Christ. Do we claim to be filled with the Spirit? He's a missionary Spirit. Do we delight in belonging to the church? It's a missionary society. Do we hope to go to heaven when we die? 
It's a heaven filled with the fruits of the missionary enterprise. It's not possible to avoid these things. If some of us needs to repent, all of us needs to take action. The authentic Christianity of the Bible is not a safe, smug, cozy, selfish, escapist little religion. On the contrary, it is deeply disturbing to our sheltered security. It's an explosive, centrifugal force which pulls us out from our narrow self-centeredness and flings us into God's world to witness and to serve. So we must find practical ways individually and through our local church of expressing this commitment. What is the church? What are God's people? What are you and me to do during the last days, the entire period between Jesus' first and his final return? One word, witness. We're to keep on freely giving what we have freely received. As part of my devotions yesterday, I also opened Kurt Bjorklund's book, Prayers for Today. And this was the prayer that I read. And with this, we'll close. Let's bow together as we pray. Father God, free me from the unbelief in the truth that the only way to you is through Jesus Christ, from the distaste of stating your truth about this one way, from the timidity that worries more about what others will think of me, from the fear of rejection, from the isolation that keeps me far from those who are far from you, from the veiled eyes that no longer see the need around me, from the uncertainty about my words and my credibility, from the selfishness that doesn't want to invest the time or energy in other people's lives, from the spiritualization that says it isn't my calling or my season, from the grand plan that tries to share with hundreds while ignoring the one before me, from the indifference that affirms truth but doesn't act, from the busyness that dominates my life with non-essential things, from the good and legitimate things that dominate my time, and replace these emotions and realities, I pray, with a passionate love of one beggar pointing another to where bread may be found. Amen.